Now, coincidentally, verse 18, again the contrast in the, uh, the antithetical distich that we have here, the wicked and the righteous. The Verse 19, again, the righteous and the evil or the wicked. The contrasts are the same, but the consequences of, their, of the action is given in two different ways. Verse 18, it's a matter of a man getting a, something he thinks has substance, but it turns out to be an empty reward. The righteous has a sure reward, a so, something solid. Uh, so you have a stability uh, as opposed to that which could never satisfy. Now in verse 19, it's a matter of life and death. In verse 19, that which is done righteously tendeth toward life, and he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own, his own death. Now, we, we mentioned last week that the little word that begins the phrase as is the word keen, which means genuine, true, veritable, honest. It's uh, uh, the idea of genuine righteousness here. It's making a contrast between that which is self-righteousness, that which is righteous according to man's standard, and the, the righteousness of God. There's no, the, the, the author, Solomon, uh, wants no question about what he's talking about when he uses this word, sadak. The word simply means to be correct according to a standard. And since there's so many standards, it's, uh, there is a false righteousness, there is a genuine righteousness. And so uh, he, he talks, first of all, about genuine righteousness, a righteousness that is compared to the righteous standard of God. And so the New American Standard Bible says, He who is steadfast in righteousness. Other uh, translations say, He who is of genuine righteousness. And uh, it's uh, making a distinction between a supposed righteousness, which is in the sight of God, no righteousness at all, and the real righteousness. Now the word for righteousness here is sadakah, a special emphasis from the word sadak. It means correct according to a standard, but it's an intensive stem, uh, and so it's speaking of an intensive moral vir virtue, an intensive righteousness. When we live by a divine principle, when we live according to the word of God, it's going to tend toward life. Righteousness is one of man's major ends. And uh, God will, will make righteousness our best friend if, uh, if we'll simply make it uh, a priority in our life. Uh, he won't do as the world does and reward us with, with uh, uh, big fat zeros uh, when we walk according to his standard and according to his will. One of the things you have to realize is that it is a built-in law in the universe uh, that righteousness leads to life and unrighteousness leads to death. And uh, what a person should do, you know, you can list a whole lot of things that people want out of life. You can list uh, happiness. And I, I think that we live, in this particular age, we live in sort of a happiness cult. Uh, 
where, where suddenly, somewhere along the line, we took a turn in the road and uh, we came to believe that the chief aim of man is to be happy. I don't know when it happened. It happened rather gradually, but I can look back even in my lifetime and realize that a lot of people, uh, young people, older people, had a much more serious purpose in life than merely their own happiness. I can recall when, when parents lived uh, in, in order to, uh, to, to bring happiness to their family, to their children. Husbands lived to bring happiness to their wife. Uh, but uh, they, they never thought so much of their own personal happiness. You know, the, the man would get up before dawn and grab his lunch pail and go off to work and uh, work hard all day and uh, come home at night and make sure everything was cared for in the house and flop into bed. And he did this night after night after night and never complained because he saw that his hard work was producing uh, was producing uh, some some real uh, privileges for his children. He was able to help his children through college and this and that and the other thing, you know. And uh, somewhere along the line, people turned from making others happy to making themselves happy. Now you hear all the time, well, of course I can't stay in that marriage. I won't be happy. I've got to break up the home because I won't be happy. Never thinking about how many other unhappy people will be. I read an article just this last week. It was saying that they made a study of children whose parents divorced 10 years ago. Now, if they were teenagers, they're now in their 20s. 10 years. And after 10 years, they say the, the scars are as severe 10 years later as they were back when, uh, when the... Uh, divorce took place 10 years later and they say they have no idea how much longer those star scars are going to be upon that person now why what's the what's the problem here well people don't understand when they get a divorce the scars it leaves behind there are scars upon children there are scars upon the husband or the wife on both uh, both sides of the fence there's scars upon the parents on both sides, scars all over the place. And people used to say, well, we better keep our marriage together for the sake of the children. They're saying now that that's heresy. You should never do anything for anybody else. You're the one that's got to be happy. And uh, I read an article the other day that said, really, if you're not happy, then nobody else around you can be happy. So the first goal of life is to make yourself happy. All right? Now, that's one of the things people can go after. You can go after money. You can go after l life. You can go after love. You can go after, after uh, peace. See? And those things then become the goals of one's life. But you see, before any of these things are truly possible, there has to be righteousness. What happens is this, that man pursues happiness and he is able to gain a semblance of happiness for the moment. It's momentary. It does not uh, last. It, it uh, does not satisfy. It will be like gravel in his mouth ultimately, 
but he will attain a certain amount of happiness. Remember, Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Sin has pleasures that you can enjoy for a season. And they, to say there's no enjoyment, to say there's no happiness, to say that the ungodly man is never happy really is not accurate. He may not have true, lasting joy, but he does have a certain degree of happiness. So don't deny that he has happiness. Yes, he has it, but it's not the kind of happiness he's looking for. It's not the kind of happiness that lasts. And so man goes after happiness and he may attain it. He goes after money and he may attain it. He goes after life and he may attain it. He goes after love, he may attain it. He goes after peace, he may attain it. He goes after a dozen other things, he may attain it. But it's always empty in the end. On the other hand, you go after righteousness and God says, I'll give you happiness that's permanent. I'll give you money that'll have lasting value. I'll give you life. I'll give you love. I'll give you peace. And when God gives something, it is a commodity that is spendable not only in time, but in eternity. When God gives something, it's something that matters, it's something that counts. And see, our lives should be headed toward righteousness. You should never ask the question, will it make me happy? You should ask, your, ask the question, is it right? You should never say, will it make me rich? You should say, is it right? You never say, will it, will it give me fullness of life? You say, is it right? People in, people in the, the early days of the church died for what was right. It was far better to die for what was right than to compromise with evil. You see how far we've come? Because most people today, if it will save your life, then it's, it's got to be right. Because life itself, temporal life, has become a goal. But there's nothing in Scripture that says you have to live. One of the greatest dilemmas that we run into in, in terms of counseling is this problem of a woman who is so-called battered wife. All right? Now, you guys all know where I stand on the divorce issue. I think we've made that fairly clear. We don't believe that divorce is justified ever. And we believe we have scripture on, on our side. But there are those who, through some theological gymnastics, um, find a couple of reasons in Scripture for divorce, okay? And they're unclear, and, and when you exegete it properly and look at it carefully, uh, you realize that, first of all, God does forbid divorce, and secondly, He definitely forbids remarriage, no matter what you believe about the divorce. But nevertheless, people um, have grabbed on to what is really a thread. There's nobody in the world that would try to prove a major theological issue with one word, except in the issue of divorce. And they grab onto this, 
and they, they say, ah, we've got a couple of reasons for divorce, okay? But there is nobody, and I mean nobody, who can twist those reasons that they have to justify divorce into saying that the Scripture says that if a man hits his wife, that she has a right to leave him. Understand what I'm saying? I don't even agree with them when they, when they lower the standard a little bit. But there is no way that you can twist Scripture. There's absolutely not one shred of Scripture that says that a wife is justified in leaving her husband if he hits her. Now, I don't like men that hit wives. If I caught you hitting your wife, I'm, not, I'm afraid of what I might do to you. Because there's no way I would stand by, even on a public street, I would risk my life if need be. If I saw a man hitting a woman, I would stop him. Okay? I'd probably think about the consequences afterward. But I, there's no way I would, I mean, I hate that. I think that's one of the most cowardly, despicable things that could ever be found is for a man to strike a woman under any circumstances. She's one of God's beautiful creations, and, and I'll tell you, it's, it's a ridiculous thing for some man to think that he can be macho by hitting her, Okay? Uh, don't get me mad about that, or I'm liable to spend the whole morning talking about that. But all right, understand? I don't like it, and I wouldn't stand for it. But God does not say that if it happens that the wife has grounds for divorce. He does not say that. I don't care what the law says. I don't care what man says. I don't know, I care how man tries to twist it. The Word of God in no way teaches that. Okay? Now, the Word of God, on the other hand, does very clearly teach exactly what the wife ought to do if she is hurt physically. And the text is in 1 Peter 2 where it's speaking about Jesus Christ and it tells us that we are called to suffering. Did you hear that? We are called to suffering and then uses Christ as the example and says that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And it goes all the way through and tells how they crucified him. And what did he do? He put himself in the hands of the Father that he knew he could trust. And it says, by his stripes we are healed. And then it says, likewise ye wives. Now wait a minute, what's the likewise there for? There's a chapter change there, so everybody gets all shook up and thinks that God would be a new thought. But likewise is a connective word that throws you back into the second chapter. And it says, like Christ was willing to suffer without opening his mouth, you wives. And then it says, likewise, you wives, when your husband won't obey the word, you be submissive to him so that by your conduct he will be convicted. Now, you don't convict your husband by running away from him, all right? But here's the problem. People will say, but pastor, are you saying that if a woman maintains a meek and quiet spirit when her husband is beating her, when her husband hits her, that that woman, even if she dies, she should stay there? You know what my answer is? What's so bad about dying? What's so bad about dying? Hold it. What are you talking about? 
you've, you've flipped your lid. What do you mean, what's so bad about dying? Listen, dying is glory. The believer in Christ dies. She dies, if she does what God tells her to do and dies in the process, she wears the martyr's crown. Let me ask you, if you, putting yourself in that position, would not die to win your husband, then what would you do if someone asked you to deny the faith or die? I got news for you. If you can't die for the sake of the one that you're married to, don't think that you'd be able to die if the communists took over, put you to the wall, and said you either deny your faith or we shoot you. You say, oh, I'd have courage in that time because that, now that's a real issue. That's something worth dying over, is it? Guess what? If you were in that kind of position, you'd be like a chocolate soldier. You'd run when the heat's on. If you would run away from a marriage because of some pesky little problem, like getting killed, you would run away from the heat of martyrdom in any condition. I wouldn't trust you for the world. Because if God is not sufficient for you in the midst of your marriage, then he's not going to be sufficient for you in the midst martyrdom. What I, what I use, and this is maybe, maybe be helpful to you in dealing with others, what I, what I usually do with a gal who, who's struggling with this, and you can imagine, here's a gal black and blue, all right? Her eyes puffed up. She's been struck by her husband repeatedly. And uh, she comes to find out she doesn't have grounds for divorce. And I point out to her, no, you have grounds to die but no grounds for divorce. She says, oh, how could that be? I said, let me ask you a question. Let's suppose for a moment that arrangements could be made for you, for you to be free of this menace, this problem. Oh, that'd be wonderful, because right now that's what she wants. She wants out. Okay, let's suppose God made that arrangement through the death of your husband or through some other legitimate means. You now are free. What would you do? Oh, I'd be willing to serve God forever. Would you really? Would you be willing to to go to um, the mission field if God wanted you to? Oh, sure. Be glad to go to the mission field. Any mission field, wherever God would want me to go, I would do. I want to serve God. In fact, really, it's one reason why I want to leave my husband. I figure that if I leave my husband, I'll be free then to serve the Lord. Okay? Suppose God called you to Bolivia. You're down in Bolivia, the jungles. And uh, the natives there are hostile to the gospel. Supposing you were in a situation where, where your life was in jeopardy. I tell them, one of my dear friends 
Dave Yarwood gave his life on a path in the jungle because of his testimony for Jesus Christ a number of years ago. Would you be willing to die for Christ there in the jungles of Bolivia? Oh, yes. You bet. Guess what? God gave you a mission field. You're in it. You're willing to die there. Oh, that's different. It's not as romantic, you know, to die in your living room as it is to die in the jungles of Bolivia. But you see, what's the difference? What's the difference? There's a marvelous poem that was written by Betty Stamm at the time. There was no assurance of martyrdom, but John and Betty Stamm in 1934, 35, somewhere back in there, um, graduates of Moody Bible Institute, missionaries with China Inland Mission, were in North China, and the communists came down in those early days, drove the Chiang Kai-shek forces south, and they came in, and they took a number of the missionaries, we had a number of friends that were taken at that time and imprisoned, and some of them died. And John and Betty Stamm were the most notable. And there have been books written about their life, and people have sort of forgotten the names, but uh, it's, it's one of those names that stuck in my mind. I was so moved by the story of John and Betty Stamm. And uh, Betty Stamm was quite a poet, and she wrote a song, uh, or a, I should say a poem, uh, that spoke of, of facing martyrdom. And, and she, she's, uh, it's, it's just called Afraid of That. Afraid of that? Question mark. Um, and she says, you know, afraid to die? Afraid to feel the Spirit's glad release? And go into the presence of my Savior? I can't quote the poem, but I can give you the gist of it. To, to suddenly be taken from life, uh, from, from uh, a life on earth to life eternal? suddenly be taken into the presence of the Lord and to know that your life has been laid down as a, as a living sacrifice for Him, that's not going to be so bad. Afraid of that? You can't be afraid of that. God has is, God is, is rendered inoperative Satan who had the, the, the power of death. He's rendered him inoperative so that today Christ holds the keys of death in Hades. So death isn't that bad. People say, but I want to live. Well, if you really want to live, you'll do the thing that's right. Because God promises life. Life eternal, life supernal. Life that is beyond this life. For those who are willing to do the righteous thing. Same thing is true of love. Everybody's seeking for love. But you do the right thing. And God will provide the love. You seek for peace. Do the right thing, and God will give you peace. You see, if we could only learn that, that that's the priority, you'll be faced constantly with options. And when you're faced with those options, generally there is that which is clearly right and clearly wrong. And it's not a matter, you see, we, we generally don't struggle just on the basis whether it's right or wrong. We struggle on the basis, could I get by with it? or not. Well, let me tell you something. You may get by with it with men. You'll never get by with it with God. 
So you choose the right thing, the righteous thing, just because it's right. You don't need any more reason than that. Now, what happens then is this. <clears throat> it tends to life. If you look carefully, if you have King James, I don't know how the NASB handles this particular verse, but the word tendeth is in italics because really it's not in the text at all. Yet in English, we don't like to have sentences without verbs. And so therefore, we, in order to make sense in English, you've got to add some kind of a verb. Uh, the, the word actually is the word li keim. You remember, she means life, but li keim uh, is the, the genitive form, which gives us accusative of result, which means that it results in life. That's, that's the idea. So the translator did his best in adding a verb uh, by the use of the genitive here, uh, giving it the idea of righteousness tending toward life. And uh, it's, it's one simple word that is a very strong word for live. The idea of real life, life to the full. There was uh, a cartoon in uh, Punch magazine, a British magazine. A little boy asked... Uh, Dad, what did you do in the last war? Speaking of the Second World War, the dad said, well, I survived. And I think that probably in the warfare, the spiritual warfare that we have in these days, there are a lot of people that figure that's all that is involved, is just survival. Uh, men seek for survival. That's a, it's a survival instinct, they say. And men have long sought for immortality. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I uh, said on her deathbed, all of my possessions for one moment of time. She could have lived one moment longer. She would have gladly given up all of her wealth and all of her riches. She didn't want to die. And so... Proverbs talks a lot about, about life. Let's just look at a few places here. Uh, Proverbs 3, you'll remember, if you've been with us for a hundred years here. <clears throat> Verses 1 and 2, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments for length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Uh, three things there. Length of days speaks of health, Long life speaks of a full life, and peace speaks, of course, of the tranquility which the heart so often seeks. Verse 16 of the same chapter, length of days is in her, that is, in wisdom's right hand, and in her left hand, riches and honor. Chapter 4, verse 10, Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of thy life shall be many. Chapter 9, verse 11. For by me thy days shall be multiplied, and the years of thy life shall be increased. Chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, 
but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. Uh, in Proverbs 11, verse 4, Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. Look over at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Look at verse 12. Honor thy father and mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth. Now you see, goodness and honesty and integrity and purity and love and righteousness tend to lengthen a man's life. Wickedness, corruption, debauchery, dis, uh, uh, dis, dissoluteness, uh, unrighteousness tends toward death. It's a natural law that's built into the universe. That certain causes bring certain effects. And there is a cause and effect involved in righteousness and unrighteousness. Now that doesn't mean that, that people who are righteous Nevertheless, uh, all live to be 90 years of age? You know that's not true. Sometimes their life is cut short. If their life is cut short, you can be sure had they done wickedly, it would have been cut shorter. And a wicked man sometimes endures for what seems to be an indeterminate amount of time. There are wicked men who have lived to a ripe old age. Well, those are the exceptions to the rule. For some reason, in God's sovereignty, he has allowed the person to live. I think sometimes it is, it's, it's just simply of his mercy. The man, the only life that he's going to be able to have and enjoy is life here on earth. He's going to spend eternity in the bitterness of hell. And that individual, God allows as long as... as uh, he can, putting up with his wickedness and putting up with his blasphemy in the hope that such an individual yet will make his peace with God. We'll look at some other texts of Scripture here. Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19 and verse 15 and following. When the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot. Now remember, Lot was a man who was generally righteous. New Testament calls him just Lot. says that his soul was vexed with the wickedness of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was compromising. He pitched his tent toward Sodom. He became a leader in the city of Sodom, he did nothing overtly about the wickedness, but he himself personally stood aloof from the wickedness, all right? So you got a guy who has tried to play both ends against the middle. He wanted the best of the world, but at the same time, his soul was righteous. He was, he was in tune in the sense of a righteous life with the things of God as opposed to the things that were not of God. And he was upset about the homosexuality and all of the rest that was in the city. When God was going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, he got a lot up in the morning and uh, got him out of town, okay? Notice, 
When the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while they lingered, see, he still, in spite of the fact that his soul was vexed about the sin, in spite of the, you know, he had his home there, he had all of these things, he didn't want to lose these things, and he was lingering. The men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, upon the hand of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful unto him, they brought him forth and set him outside of the city, gave him a kick in the pants, and told him, get going and don't look back. And he obeyed that, and he lived. Righteousness tends toward life. Lot's wife took one last long look at the city and turned to a pillar of salt, or perhaps better, to a pillar of ash. What happened to her is similar to what happened to the people who dared to look at the cities of, uh, in Japan that were destroyed by the atomic bomb. They were terribly burned like a pile of ash. And so it may be that the word ash and the word salt are so similar in the Hebrew, there is a possibility that that's the way that should be translated, a pile of ash rather than a pillar of salt. Nevertheless, her life was shortened. Why? Just simple disobedience. Angel said, don't look back. She looked back. Okay? Lot kept his eyes straight forward and it tended toward life. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 45. <coughs> Verse 5. Barak was one of those leaders of Israel that Jeremiah had to contend with. And uh, he says in verse 4 of this brief chapter, Thus shalt thou say unto him, The Lord saith thus, Behold, that which I have built will I break down, that which I have planted I will pluck up, even this whole land. And seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. For behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, saith the Lord. But thy life will I give unto thee for a prize in all places to which thou goest. Now God is making a promise that he is going to give life to this man. Life rather than death. Look again at the book of Proverbs, chapter 10. Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 16. The labor of the righteous tendeth to life, that which, which is produced by a man who is living righteously. That is the the effort, every effort of the righteous man tendeth to life. The fruit of the wicked. You see, the, uh, the, the wicked are seeking uh, various things that uh, will ultimately result in fruit. And the fruit of the wicked tendeth toward sin. So 
So it's a matter of life or sin. What does sin ultimately bring? Sin brings death. Look at Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 10. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with him. For they, that is the wicked, they shall eat the fruit of their doing. It's going to be well with the righteous, but the wicked are going to eat the fruit of their doing. Now look at verse 9. The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin like Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. They keep piling up evil. That's their reward, just doing evil. But they're going to eat the fruit of their doings. But with the righteous, it's going to be well with them. Look over at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 7. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, he's not talking here about a matter of salvation. He's talking here about the fact that the individual who seeks righteousness tends toward life. And he that seeks unrighteousness, what he does in a natural consequence, tends toward death. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Verse 8. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That's the sure reward. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 10. Here's one of the best verses. It comes from Psalm 34, actually. You can find basically the same teaching in Psalm 34. But listen to how Peter puts it. For he that will love life, that is something that you, you have as, as, as a desire. You want to live, okay? Not only that, you want to see good days. Uh, here, are some, here are some things that are involved in, in, in the general sense of tending toward life. Let, his, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile, and never dishonest. Let him hate evil, turn aside from evil, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now why do those things tend toward life? Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Psalm 91. 
Psalm 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. There's a place of protection there. When you dwell with God, you have his protection. Now, we won't take time to read the whole incident, but look with me, if you will, at Second uh, Chronicles chapter 32. This is the, the tale of Sennacherib's second invasion of Judah. You remember that the Syrian armies were successful in taking the ten northern tribes of Israel captive. And the Syrian army wanted to do the mop-up job of taking the, the southern kingdom, which amounted to Judah and Benjamin, the capital city Jerusalem was there. It was a similar type of situation as they had in uh, North and South Korea, uh, the kind of thing they had during the Civil War in the Mason-Dixon line, um, the, the kind of thing that they had in North and South Vietnam for a time until the Allied forces were pulled out and so on. Uh, whenever you have conquered a part of a country, you, you tend not to be satisfied until you've done, up the, done the mop-up operation and taken possession of the whole land. It's, it's kind of a, a face-saving venture for the warrior, if you please. And uh, so the uh, Sennacherib figured that Judah would be a pushover, and his first invasion was a fiasco uh, because uh, he, he was uh, defeated soundly. Uh, the Lord intervened. But in chapter 32, he comes uh, in a second uh, invasion. And in this invasion... He, he, he challenges not only the people of Judah and Benjamin, but he gives a verbal challenge uh, to God himself. He basically intimidates the people uh, by repeatedly saying to them, you know, what assurance do you have that you can survive? I have 185,000 soldiers out here, and uh, we're, we're, we're going to invade you, and and you've had it. And uh, Hezekiah was the king at the time. And Hezekiah was a righteous man. Now, begin to read at verse 2. It says, when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come, that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which are outside the city, and they did help him. So there, uh, there they gathered many people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the king of Syria come and find much water? See, they had a tremendous waterworks. There were, there were springs. One of the reasons that Jerusalem was hard to conquer was because they had springs, this, uh, several springs within the city wall, and they had a supply of water. And they also had the Hezekiah's tunnel, the aqueduct that came into the city, and uh, provided them with abundance uh, of water. But actually, because uh, the city of Jerusalem is, is well situated on a hill, 
And because the springs were natural springs that came uh, into the city, there were rivers that would run out of the city and thereby supply water uh, to Sennacherib's, Sennacherib's troops. And Hezekiah got all the people in the city to stop up the water supply. That was just a defensive measure. Also, he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers and another wall outside it and repaired Milo in the city of David where Hezekiah's tunnel uh, was, was found and uh, made weapons and shields in abundance. He set captains of war over the people, gathered them together in the street of uh, the gate of the city, spoke encouragement to them, saying, Be strong, courageous, be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria and for all the multitude who are with him, for we are more with us than with him. Now there's faith, all right? More with us than with him. And remember that uh, there's nothing wrong with the military defense, with the military buildup here that Hezekiah did. Hezekiah took care of the necessary military things uh, to defend the city. But what he said was that having done their part, which is man's part involved in this, he says in verse 8, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Well, now, watch what happens. After this, did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, send his servants to Jerusalem, but he himself laid siege against Lachish and all his power with him unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, and unto all Judah who were at Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what do you trust that you abide in the siege of Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God shall deliver us out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Hath not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense upon it? Says, you know, back in Syria, we have all kinds of gods. You know, if one god doesn't come through for you, another god will come through for you. This silly guy, Hezekiah, torn down all the altars to these other gods, and he's making you serve only one god. How do you know that, that one god's going to come through for you? I mean, this is really uh, making, uh, you know, for us, when we, with 20-20 hindsight, we step back and look at this, and we kind of chuckle. But imagine being there and being in it. And these people had been idol worshipers up until the time that Hezekiah became the king. Hezekiah came in, there was tremendous reform, they tore down all the elders, and they were serving the living and true God. They only had one God. And uh, how are they gonna how are they gonna escape without this multiplicity of gods? It was the philosophy of the pagans. But Hezekiah had done the right thing. He had torn down all the altars. And he was safe because he was resting in the arms of the Lord. With them was the arm of the flesh, and with us is the Lord our God. And then verse 13, Know ye not what I and my fathers have done unto all the people of their lands? Our reputation is legend. Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations? Utterly destroyed, that could deliver his people out of my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you out of my hand. Take a look at history. God didn't come through for the ten northern tribes. He didn't come through for Egypt. 
It didn't come through for Babylon. It didn't come through for these other people. How in the world do you think he's going to come through for you? Now, therefore, let not Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you in this manner. Neither yet believe him. For no god of any nation nor kingdom was able to deliver his people out of my hand and out of the hand of my fathers. How much less shall your God deliver you out of my hand? His servant spoke yet more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He wrote also letters to rail on the Lord God of Israel, to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people out of my hand, so shall not the God of Hezekiah deliver his people out of my hand. He had a printing press out there, you know, and he printed off all these brochures, and he launched them into the city, and he said, every one of them said the same thing. How in the world do you expect to be delivered? You only got one God, and this one God has never helped anybody before. He's not going to help you now. This is a scene. And they cried with a loud voice, and the Jews speak. They even got a translator out there to yell it out in Hebrew unto the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and to trouble them that they might take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem, against God, the people on earth, which were the work of the hands of men. You know, doing stuff like that tends toward death. All right? Speaking against the Lord God of Israel. But now notice what happens. And for this cause, Hezekiah the king, the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, prayed and cried to the Lord of heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and captains in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. Here, here he is going back. And 185,000 soldiers dead. And Sennacherib all by himself with a tail between his legs going back totally defeated. When he was coming to the house of his God, they who came forth of his own loins, slew him there with a sword, went into the presence of his God saying, hey God, what happened here? While he was kneeling in prayer to his God, his own kinfolk came and slew him while he prayed. Whose God's able to protect? Which God is not able to protect? He got things fouled up, didn't he? Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. Life. Life. Life comes because of righteousness. Hezekiah did the right thing. God preserved him. Sennacherib did the wrong thing. God allowed him to taste his own blood. That's the way it works. The question is whether you want to live or not. And in living, whether you want to live the real life, whether you want to depend upon the superficial, temporary things that claim they can preserve life, or whether you want to uh, turn to the living and true God who made you in the first place and certainly can give you life. Now when it talks about life, there's a number, there's a number of of aspects of this life. Um, we, want, we won't be able to finish this this morning, but we can, we can get you started anyway. The, per, the, the first thing has to do with life in a personal and psychological sense. 
right? Chapter 3 of Proverbs now. Look at this. Chapter 3 and verse 22. It's talking here about wisdom and discretion. In fact, read verse 21 with me. My son, let them let not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Okay? So shall they be life unto thy soul. The mind, emotions, the will, the conscience, the self-consciousness. There'll be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. But the life aspect is life to the soul. Life mentally, life emotionally, life uh, volitionally, life in the sense of your conscience. It's life to your soul. When it's talking about life to your soul, it's talking about vitality, vitality to the inner man, therefore vitality to the whole being. Uh, grace to thy neck is speaking of the outward bearing. But life to the soul is speaking of the nourishment of the inner man. So that the, the life that is being offered is life that is personal and psychological. In chapter 14, verse 30, it says, A sound heart, the inner life again, is the life of the flesh. But envy, the rottenness of the bones, the opposite of, of the sound heart in this particular case, is envy, rottenness to the bones. By the way, did you know that the ancient Greeks believed that there was a uh, that there was a relationship to the marrow of the bone? They didn't understand fully was related to the whole blood system and so on. That there was a relationship to the bones and mental illness. So that's why when it talks about life to your bones, it's speaking primarily of psychological life, psychological the psychological sense involved. Uh, a healthy bone structure was thought uh, to be uh, related to a healthy mental attitude. And that when there was a bone breakdown, it was, it was related to a psychological breakdown. So as a result, uh, it's speaking there about that. Second kind is, we'll start on this next time, material and social life. Okay? So we'll start there next time and we'll show you a couple verses on that and then further the moral and spiritual life as well. Thank you, Father, for your provision for us. Minister, we pray, through thy word. Use that word to deal with our hearts in a very special and peculiar way. Throughout this day, we pray that we will choose righteousness. If for no other reason, just because it's right. We pray that we'll live for you completely. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good day, men, and do righteousness.